0: Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
1: Hey, it's Gonzano I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome
3: to The Baldcast. A production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth.
1: Oh, so much to talk about on today's show. Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach. I expect he's going to address the rumors today, the whispers, the rumors. Texas A&M, they've got a vacancy. It's that kind of season. Jonathan Smith, if he is on the move, what kind of job would appeal to Jonathan Smith, and what can Oregon State do to keep their football coach from getting antsy? Further, there's a uh, dilemma that I have. Tomorrow in Whitman County Superior Court in Colfax, Washington, There will be a hearing, and it'll be the PAC-2 against the PAC-12 conference. It'll be, uh, uh, I think, covered and followed by everybody within the PAC-12 footprint, and I had a real dilemma uh, on my hands Uh, when, uh, when I was deciding whether or not I should be in court. I was thinking about the advantages of being there in person, The athletic directors who are going to be on the scene. The university president, certainly, that will be in court. The attorneys from both sides that will be there. Judge Gary Leiby, the honorable judge who is at the center of this case. Like, what advantages do I have by actually being in the room while the arguments are being made? And while the sides are trying to hash things out. And I decided ultimately that I needed to be there, that I should be in court to see this because I want to cover it and I want you to know what's going on you'll hear from me on tomorrow's radio show but beyond that also uh, I'll have full coverage of the events of Tuesday at John so if you're wondering you know what the scene looks like sounds like hell what it uh, what it smells like I'll have it I'll be there and I'm gonna be there because you don't have to be there or I'll be there so you don't have to be there but I have had a dilemma like literally today You know, even though I'm booked on an airline trip, even though I have a rental car reserved, even though, you know, I should uh, be able to uh, travel and uh, get into the uh, area well before that court hearing. You know, I'm left thinking and wondering, will there be a settlement? Will the PAC-2 and the PAC-12 arrive at a settlement? Will I be in the air, headed into uh, Whitman County when the settlement is reached? And will I then just get on the ground and then end up standing or sitting in, uh, in the courtroom by myself writing a column and reporting on what the settlement is and uh, what the details of that settlement are, or uh, is it better to be there, not be there? I guess I run a risk, but that's kind of the job, and that's the, uh, the risk I take. So I will be there tomorrow in court in that uh, Judge Gary Leiby's courtroom to hear the arguments. And if there is a settlement that is struck— you know, because I talked with attorneys on both sides over the weekend. If there's a settlement that's struck, and I do think that they are moving closer to a settlement, I will have the details of that settlement, and I will have uh, all the news tomorrow from Whitman County as Oregon State and Washington State are trying to gain governance of the conference, get the board seats, get control of the money. There's certainly questions by the 10 departing schools that would like to hold on to the money, and not uh, put it all in the hands of Oregon State and Washington State as they uh, you know, are trying to move forward as a Pac-12 conference uh, that has now only two members. And I think the 10 departing members are a little nervous about the $420 million in revenue from media rights, in revenue from NCAA tournament distributions and college football playoff distributions and Rose Bowl equivalency payments. And the infrastructure of the Pac-12 networks, I think the uh, departing ten schools are awfully worried that if Oregon State and Washington State get control of the thing, that they're going to, uh, you know, try to try to uh, say, you know what, uh, you don't get to, you don't get your share of the four hundred twenty million dollars. Every school about $30, $35 dollars in payments that they expect in this fiscal year. Um, I don't think Oregon State and Washington State at, at, at any time have said we are, we are aiming to withhold those payments from you, but I certainly would understand why the 10 departing schools are going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, we, we understand that you need to govern the conference. We understand that you want control of things. We understand that, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of indisputable that they they, backst- they backstabbed Oregon State and Washington State and left them kind of in a lurch, like nobody's disputing that. But I think the schools that are departing really would like to have some peace of mind on that on that front, where they're going. Hey, wait a minute, we're not. You're not actually going to take all the money and leave us with nothing. We've got a legal expert coming up in the four o'clock hour, who's going to give us kind of the layman's terms and the layman's lay of the land as it pertains to a hearing like this. What is a, what is the uh, expected outcome? What is likely? I'm being told that uh, depending on who wins this, uh, this hearing tomorrow, and if you could say wins and losses in a courtroom or a thing, that it's likely that there will be an appeal. It's also, uh, uh, there's a chance that Judge Gary Leiby would not rule from the bench, that he would listen to all the testimony and then decide that he's going to take some time and come back a day or two later with his decision. Uh, the University of Washington is lobbying the Supreme Court in the state of Washington, trying to get them involved. It's unknown right now whether the Supreme Court and the state of Washington would be interested in this case, and if so, how long would it take for them to hear it? Is it like an hour? I asked an attorney that over the weekend. I said, is this like, if the Supreme Court gets involved, is this like a phone call? Is it a Zoom? Or is it, are we talking about several more weeks, which Washington State and Oregon State frankly don't have? The Beavers and the Cougars have got to figure out where they're playing in 2024, and I suspect they already know and I suspect they're waiting to to unveil that and let people know uh, what they're ultimately going to do. But big day tomorrow. Um, I don't know if I'm making the right decision or not by going. But I, you know, I really weighed back and forth, and even over the weekend was thinking, gosh, you know, if there's likely to be an appeal, is it is it better if I'm there, not there? Should I just watch it on Zoom like everybody else, or am I really going to get better? information by being in the courtroom and I think ultimately after speaking with attorneys on both sides and sort of understanding who's going to be in the room and the stuff that nobody's gonna see on zoom I think it's better that I'm there than not it's my job and so I will be there for you Uh, we got a great show for you today Matthew Wand will be joining us in the four o'clock hour he is gonna give us sort of the legal I guess scouting report on this thing if you could say there's such a thing Uh, We'll also talk a lot on uh, today's show about Dan Lanning, uh, the University of Oregon football coach. A lot of people wondering, like, you know, would he be a candidate at Texas A&M? Could that be a thing? Uh, Could Dan Lanning be on the move? I think uh, if you are a uh, Beaver fan, if you are a Duck fan, you have kind of the same problem. you got two really good football coaches here in the state of Oregon. But, you know, if Dan Lanning... Really is going to uh, explore a job. I would be surprised if that job came sooner rather than much later down the road. Um, and I and I'm basing this on a couple of things. If you're an Oregon fan who's worried about Dan Lanning, I got to tell you this: like you know, last summer in July, Oregon extended Dan Lanning's contract after the ten win season. And it was greeted with a lot of sideways looks by people who were like, whoa, that's really interesting. Like season one was a good season, but it was like, was it good enough to give him a contract extension after one year? And now it kind of makes sense to me that Oregon did it. Like Oregon moving to the Big Ten Conference, maybe Oregon knew at that time that there was a chance that they'd be moving into another conference and they wanted to lock Lanning down. Maybe they knew that Lanning was a threat to have a really good season and flirt with a college football playoff berth and that it was in their best interest to try to lock him down. Or maybe Oregon just knew that, you know, it got him at a value. He had no proof of performance at 36 years old when they handed him the keys. And then after seeing him operate for a season, maybe Rob Mullins said, you know what? I think he can get the job done. I I have faith in him. I like what I saw. And so give it a vote of confidence. I don't know which of those things it was. But Oregon decided to extend Lanning and raise him from about the 39th highest paid coach in the country into a top 15-16 pay structure. And, I, you know, obviously I spoke to Dan Lanning in the wake of that. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was greeted by Duck fans with mostly favorable reviews. There were some Duck fans who just thought 10 wins in Season 1 wasn't good enough, lost to Washington, lost to Oregon State lost those two rivalry games, they weren't happy, and maybe they were going to please nobody, but I think that most Duck fans kind of saw the logic in it. From Lanning's standpoint, really clear to me that he and his wife, Sophia, would love nothing more than to have their three sons grow up in the same place, graduate from the same high school, and I think they really are thinking about that place as Eugene. Now, keep in mind, Dan Lanning grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City. He grew up on six and a half acres. I've talked to his parents, Don and Janice. I've talked to them about what it was like to raise young Daniel Lanning. They call him Daniel. And what he used to do on weekends in his first car, His how he learned to drive a stick shift, and the friends he grew up with, and the football pants that he wore in his final high school game that he never washed afterwards. And So I feel like I have a good sense of who this guy is. And you've heard my interviews with him on this show. I mean, they're more like talking about life, talking about family, talking a little bit about football. But part of it is because I think I've done the legwork and I kind of understand who this guy is and I understand what motivates him. Like, I think he wants to win a national championship. I think he wants to be a football coach at a high level at a university that he thinks that he can win uh, on that level or compete for a championship in most years. And for that reason, I think, you know, given the emphasis now on the transfer portal and name image likeness, I think Dan Lanning has one of the best jobs in college football. Like, there, you know, there's about 10 or 12 of these jobs, and he's got one of them. He also has the benefit of knowing how undesirable things got for Chip Kelly, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal. Like, is there a success story, by the way, of any coach ever leaving Oregon or Oregon State and having more success anywhere else? Like, think about it. Dennis Erickson, Mike Riley, Chip Kelly, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal. Nobody leaves and does better. I would, I would hope to think that Dan Lanning's paid attention to that. I understand why Taggart and Cristobal left. They went home to Florida. I know what Kelly left for the NFL, had his reasons. But I don't see the logic in Dan Lanning leaving Oregon for any job that isn't a no-brainer. And I think he'll come out tonight at his news conference on Monday night when he's asked about it. And I think he will shoot a giant hole in the center of that rumor and I think he will just say hey man it's great to uh, it's great to be wanted it's great that you know success is uh, is obviously going to um, cause some institutions to take a harder look at the coach and that's wonderful that we're getting that but I need you know I think he's going to say I need to tell you that uh, I'm happy here and this is the place I'm going to be and they will be here as long as they'll have me and I think that's the kind of mentality that he has again grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City His alma mater is a Division II football school, liberal arts college, William Jewell College. He doesn't have to worry about, like, his former college trying to lure him away. But keep in mind, I wrote this today at johnconzano.com. He and his wife have moved seven times in the last 13 years. They have three sons in elementary school and one in middle school. Seven moves in 13 years. Think about what that oldest child has been through. Think about the middle child and the youngest. Dan Lanning told me in July when Oregon extended his contract, he said that one of his family priorities was to see his three boys grow up and graduate from the same high school. He wants them to have the experience that he had as a kid, not moving around seven times in 13 years. And so I really do think we're going to get to see that in Eugene. I think you know a no-brainer job comes available. It's a different conversation because I think you can move again if you're Dan Lanning, but I would be really surprised if he was interested in going anywhere at this point, point. and I think he's going to say that tonight in his introductory news conference. Jonathan Smith, a little different story, right? Because Jonathan Smith has had success at Oregon State. He's built Oregon State to a place that uh, nobody else, frankly, except maybe Dennis Erickson, has gone. He's threatening to win 10 games for the second year in a row. Yeah, Nobody's done that. He's threatening now to uh, put a dent in the middle of the college football playoff rankings, ranked 10th in the AP poll, likely to be right around 10 or 11 in the college football playoff ranking poll when it comes out tomorrow. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see sort of how Jonathan Smith approaches this offseason. Now, I told you weeks ago that if I were Oregon State, that I would be hot after extending – Jonathan Smith, giving him a contract extension, I think you have to really worry, given that Oregon State doesn't have a conference in 2024, you have to be really concerned about what is going to happen, what might, uh, you know, will Jonathan Smith be lured away, will it be Michigan State, will it be Texas A&M, will it be somebody, because I think anybody with half a brain who's got an opening is going to say, hey, how about that guy at Oregon State? You know, he's they got dealt a raw deal. Now, the fact that Oregon State has not announced a contract extension to Jonathan Smith to this point is a little bit alarming to me because I I think, I don't know this, but I suspect they have tried to extend him, and I'm going to guess if I'm his agent, Jimmy Sexton's his agent, I would push back and say, hey, I need to know what conference we're playing in before I sign anything, and you haven't announced that. And so I think there's a little bit of a delay there. And again, I'll point to the court hearing tomorrow. There's a little bit of delay here in that in the next two weeks, I think Oregon State and Washington State are going to have to come out and say, here's the plan for 2024, and then Jonathan Smith's going to have to say, hey, do I want to be part of it? Am I going somewhere else or whatnot? And I think it's going to be a little dicey for Oregon State in the next couple weeks, but they got a football game they have to focus on against Washington, and then they have a football game they have to focus on against Oregon, and then it very quickly becomes transfer portals opening December 4th. But in and around all that, I think you got to tell your athletes what you're doing. You have to tell your head coach what you're doing. And you're potentially going to have to play defense against a bunch of schools that are going to come after Jonathan Smith thinking that, you know, he's probably a little anxious about the conference affiliation of Oregon State and what that means to him. Now, I, there are some jobs I think Jonathan Smith would be really interested in. They're not currently open, though. I don't know if he'd be interested in going to Michigan State in taking what is kind of a mid tier at best job in the Big Ten conference. In the new Big Ten, that's a mid tier job at best. I don't think I don't know if he'd be interested in going to Texas A and M. I don't I don't know. I don't have any sense on that. But I can tell you that the job that I think was always a threat to Oregon State and will remain a threat to Oregon State if Jonathan Smith stays there is USC. And I think Lincoln Riley at some point is going to go to the NFL. I don't know if it's now. I don't know if it's in a year. I don't know if he takes the Raiders job. I don't know if he just says, no, I'm getting paid $100 million over the next decade at USC. I'll just stay there. But I think when that job opens up, if Jonathan Smith is still in a precarious position like he is right now at Oregon State, uh, I would be really surprised if Jennifer Cohen, the athletic director at USC, didn't put Jonathan Smith on her short list along with Kalen DeBoer at Washington. And further, if if Jennifer Cohen hires Kalen DeBoer away from Washington, I have to think the Huskies would be looking at Jonathan Smith and saying, hey, yeah, we knew him as a play caller, let's get him back, uh, back up to Seattle. So I think if you're Oregon State, those are the two jobs. It's Washington and it's USC that I think you really have to worry about. I think if you add a third job in there for Jonathan Smith, it's UCLA. And Chip Kelly just got extended last year. There's a lot of Bruin fans upset with him, especially after the loss over the weekend to Arizona State. But I think Chip Kelly is owed too much money right now by a UCLA athletic department that just can't afford to fire him. Too early, just gave him an extension. Probably, uh, you know, he's got Dante Moore in the fold, probably going to have better quarterback play moving forward in the next couple years. So, you know, I don't think UCLA and Martin Jarmont are in any position right now. To uh, cut bait on Chip Kelly, I think he's going to get another couple years. So, uh, you know, if I'm Oregon State, I'm watching Lincoln Riley. I'm watching Kalen DeBoer. I'm not as worried about Michigan State and Texas A&M. And I better come up with a really good plan for Jonathan Smith to present to him and his players. Otherwise, I lose more than just players in the portal. Uh, I'll take your phone calls. I want you to tell me what you forecast when it comes to the coaches in this state. What have we learned? Have we learned anything from Mario Cristobal going to Miami? It's been a struggle. you watch Chip Kelly leave for the NFL. It's been a mixed bag for him at best. He didn't really have success in the NFL, and now he's kind of middling along at UCLA, 500 coach there. You look at uh, Willie Taggart. He goes to Florida State. He gets fired. You watched Dennis Erickson leave Oregon State. He said it was the greatest mistake of his life, biggest mistake of his life. Mike Riley was on this show on Friday. I said, what was the bigger regret, leaving Oregon State the first time or the second time? It wasn't like there was a happy ending for Mike Riley at either place. So what have we learned, and what would you tell the coaches in this state? And who's the bigger flight risk in your mind? 503-417-7575. Great show for you today. Uh, big guest, great sound. We've got you covered. Leave it here. I don't think if I'm Dan Lanning, I'd be interested in leaving for any job right now after what you have going at Oregon and what you see happening in the landscape of college athletics. He will address the media tonight as he does every Monday night in his news conference, and I expect that he will take that question head on. I want to go to the phone lines. Jonathan Smith. Dan Lanning. How different are those two guys? Because I think right now, if you've got a vacancy at Texas A.M. and Michigan State or even Washington or USC, if that happens, I think you have to consider those guys for the job. And I think when you have success and you win 10 games and you're at the top of your conference and you're ranked in the top 10, you're going to get inquiries. I want you to tell me what you see. 503 Seventy-five, seventy-five. Roy's in Portland. Roy, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, John. Hey, John. Uh, you know, I, I said this from the beginning with Jonathan Smith, and I, I told you, man, uh, John, a couple. Years, this guy's a superstar, and I, and, and I, I'm sorry for Oregon State fans. I love you guys, but listen, he owes it to himself if he gets a Big Ten or SEC job to leave. I mean, what can I mean, Oregon State? is to me you just the inevitable. You're not I mean you have to join a conference. Yeah. And were. the only conference you got is the this whole scenario with only two teams Well, that that's not gonna work. You have to join the big uh the uh, Mountain West and it's and and that's just not you're not going anywhere in that conference. Yeah. And I'm sorry I feel sorry for you guys. But if Jonathan Smith is offered a Michigan State or a Texas A and M. job, he, he has to take that job.
1: Yes. Do you think Do you think he could do better? Do you think Michigan State, Texas A and M, are those good jobs? Is that a good SEC or a Big Ten job?
2: Oh yeah, with the money that the and the, and the access to recruits you got at Texas A and M, to me, Michigan State is a sleeping giant. If they mm-hmm. get the right coach in there, they can do well in the Big Ten. I, I I think he has to take those jobs, and 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 Dan Lanning. Let me tell you something. Dan Lanning would be. I don't know what he would be thinking about going to Texas A&M. No. Why would you want to go in that dumpster fire? Why would you leave? Oregon is a better program than Texas A&M. I don't sure. understand what people are. What has Texas A&M done in the last 20 years? Absolutely nothing. Oregon is a much better program than Texas A&M. I don't even remember. I was at the early 90s with R.C. Slocum. I don't remember Texas A&M doing anything. I mean, That's I mean, why, why would you leave Oregon for Texas A and I mean, it's a dumpster fire down there. You got to recruit against Alabama. You got to recruit against LSU. You got to recruit against Oklahoma. You got to recruit against Texas. When you can go into the Big Ten, you, I'm sure Oregon, Oregon's got some of the best facilities in the country right now. I would think Oregon is the third best team in the Big Ten. Well, why yeah. would you leave a good yeah. situation like Oregon to go? And I'm telling you, it's not. I mean, like you said. I, They're ready to run Chip Kelly out of town. Now, I can see Jonathan Smith's stance, as he's from Pasadena, maybe taking a UCLA job, but we don't know if that'll be offered to
1: him. Yeah, I kind of wonder wonder if Jonathan Smith's angle, though, is to wait and see what happens here with the Pac-2. And I disagree a little bit with Roy, but I understand why he's saying it. I think ultimately, yes, Oregon State and Washington State end up in a conference that looks a lot like the Mountain West. I think it will be called the Pac-12. I don't know if it's going to include all the Mountain West schools, but I think in the next one year, in the next 12 months, I don't think they're going to do a straight merger. I think they're going to say, no, 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 we're the Pac-2, because they have to because of tomorrow's court case. They have to say, we're staying, we're seeing it out, we want governance, we want the assets, because there's $170 million in future NCAA tournament revenues and Rose Bowl payments that are due to the conference in 2024-2025. And so you have to say, no, 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 not a straight merger. So if you're Jonathan Smith, are you better off jumping at a job right now if you're offered it, or do you slow play this thing, coach another season at Oregon State, and then look around and go, okay, is USC open, is Washington open, or do you jump to like a Michigan State or whatever if they do offer you the job? I think it's a real question. Tony's in Oregon City. Tony, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, John. Um, I'm kind of concerned in regards to why would OSU want to tie up Johnson Smith with a whole bunch of money when they don't know what's going to happen in the next two, five years, and that's an awful lot of money that a school that might be in the Mountain West would have to be able to divert funds
3: elsewhere. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think you know here. I think the easy answer is if you want to compete at the top of a group of five conference, if that's where you're going to end up, you can easily outspend Boise State, Fresno State, UNLV, Air Force, by continuing to fund your program like it's a Power Five conference member. And having Jonathan Smith at the helm of that is a lot better than going out and trying to hire Andy Avalos or the latest Brady Hoke. And that's what you're up against in the Mountain West Conference. And... Let's face it, the Mountain West Conference champion in most years in a 12-team expanded playoff scenario, that Mountain West Conference champion is going to make the playoff. So if you're Oregon State, yeah, I would throw a few more dollars at Jonathan Smith and try to lock him up, especially knowing that tomorrow's court hearing is a pivotal hearing where $170 million or more could slide Oregon State and Washington State's way. It could Pave the way for them rebuilding the conference. And frankly, if they're going to do a rebuild of the Pac-12, I'm going to tell you right now, you don't want all the Mountain West members. You don't want Wyoming. You don't want New Mexico. You probably don't want San Jose State. And I think what you would do is you would take San Diego State, Air Force, Colorado State. You would take UNLV to get Vegas. You would take Boise State. You'd take Fresno State. You'd say, thank you very much. We're at eight now. And we'll wait to see if Stanford and Cal have a little buyer's remorse on the ACC. Wait to see if UCLA-USC ever think about coming back. Wait to see, frankly, what Michigan's going to do. Maybe they're going to blow up all of Division One football. Who knows? Let's go to Sean who's in Vancouver. Sean, welcome.
4: Hey, John. Hope you and your family are well. So, uh, Dan Lanning, it's a top ten premier uh, program in the country. He's He's not going anywhere. He's safe. But Johnson Smith, and here's a little conspiracy theory. And maybe you know you've yep. got your ear to the ground more than me, but maybe it's not that Oregon's not offering it to him. Maybe that he has decided to hold off until there's right. some more answers. True, um, true. You know, the 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 big problem is not going to be can they bubble to the top? Can Oregon State bubble to the top of a what? Let's be honest, a second tier Division One football conference. But will the kids stick around? With the with the the you know the transfer portal, he may see the writing on the wall and decide you know I I'm going to hold off. I'll finish my contract, but after that you know I'll, I'll do the best I can between now and then. But you know maybe he is gone at the end of this season or maybe the end of next season.
1: Yeah, I I think your your pro your sense is right on Jonathan Smith. I think if I'm Oregon State, I'd love to lock him up. And the fact that we haven't heard anything in the last two weeks tells me that Jimmy Sexton, his agent, and Jonathan Smith are probably going, hey, we'd like to see what happens here. And that's why, again, I'm going to point to tomorrow. I'm going to be there. I'll be there in Whitman County, in that Superior Courthouse. I talked to Judge Gary Leiby a couple weeks ago. I said, do I have to make, like, a media reservation? And he said, no, it's a public courtroom. Just come on in. And so I will be there. And, you know, I'm sure Oregon State and Washington State are going to be there. I'll try to talk with them about their plans for their coaches and all of that moving forward. Steve's in Lake Oswego. Steve, welcome to the conversation.
2: Hi, John. I've got a really great rumor for you, and of course you're the one that knows everything, so you'd probably uh, laugh at me. But I've got some very good friends, and I'm, I mean very good friends at UCLA. I was talking to them on Sunday and they said, here is the rumor that's going around right now. It is that Give Kelly is going to be let go at the end of the year uh, for two reasons: one, because the 500 coach, and two, that apparently some dissension on the team, and a lot of those kids are thinking about jumping into the portal. But the rumor is, is that Urban Meyer, because of his relationship with the current AD, who actually brought helped bring Urban Meyer to Ohio State, and also that Urban Meyer's experience in the Big Ten. So uh, I just thought I'd throw it out to you because you know these people are not just. These are people that are actually in the UCLA administration, and and, uh, I just thought it was an interesting rumor, so I thought I'd throw it out to you.
1: Yeah, look, I I do think there's some displeasure internally with administrators at UCLA with the job that Chip Kelly has done. He's been about 500, and I think had he not posted a really good season last year with Dorian Thompson-Robinson, I think UCLA was poised to make a change. Uh, at head coach. I also know that some of the big boosters at UCLA, the Wasserman family in particular, were not happy with the movement or the um, the noise inside the athletic department about getting rid of Chip Kelly. So Troy Aikman, who's influential in that community and and the Wasserman family are really running the show at UCLA. That's the equivalent of Phil Knight. Um, at UCLA. But I think, you know, UCLA's out over its skis right now because they extended Chip Kelly. They'd owe him about $30 million if they had to fire him. And so I, I think, you know, remember they were pleading poverty just a year ago. I think it's too much to make a change at head coach and a transition to the big 10 conference in the same year for UCLA. I think it's just too much. So I'm not saying Chip Kelly has, like, a lot of job security there, but I don't think Chip Kelly, based on the way he's been talking, I don't think he's too worried about it. And that tells me that I think they stay with him at least for another year. They let him bring Dante Moore back. My one caveat is, is it possible that Chip Kelly doesn't want to go to the Big Ten? And he just says, you know what, I'm out, I'm going to go live in – you know pacific palisades and i can hang out with lebron and my other neighbors if that's the case it's a different conversation mark in portland welcome to the conversation
3: hey john i'm just looking as a longtime duck fan how it was with rich brooks and Bilotti it was a lot of you know loyalty and and uh a lot of long-term coaches at, at other schools are like that today it's it's completely different it's all about you know, the money, I guess, but, uh, I'm with Oregon. Now I'm learning to just accept them as like a hot girlfriend and I'm just a- along for the ride until the next one dumps us. Cause <laughs> I don't believe, <laughs> I don't believe that Dan Lanning, you know, I don't believe he's going to stay here. I've been scorned too many times. So I, I, with all, you know, it seems like every new job, the, m- the more success he has here at Oregon, the more uh, more other you know schools in the SEC and and those kind of places are going to want him and, and pretty soon there might be a place that he can't resist that, that
1: offers there him might a job. be I'll tell you this mark and I'll just keep you on here for a second I talked to his parents and it was right after he was hired and his dad told me you know it's not like his alma mater is going to come after him and his dad told me he said his you know Dan's wife Sophia and the boys have moved around so often They were just really happy to have a place they could call home. And then here comes the first season. He wins 10 games. In July, he gets extended. I talked to Lanning. He says to me, literally, this allows me to get comfortable here. And, you know, our wish is for our kids to all graduate from the same high school. And they want that. And so I I really, like, maybe I'm going to get scorned here, too. Maybe (laughs) maybe I'm a fool. But I really, I'm taking him at his word. For the, for for what
3: he's doing right now, uh, he's built us a solid uh, offense and defense. Really, uh, since the 2012 team, at least, where we were number one uh, defense and offense in the Pac-12. This this uh, he's building something here that we love. But I mean, when this stuff comes up, I'm just uh, you know you got to protect yourself because I, I really the last thing the icing on the cake for Oregon fans my age is we've seen everything else but a national championship and he could be the guy that does that with Phil Knight and you know i it, it, it's going to mean something if somebody ever gets the first title here cuz we've done everything else but win a national championship so yeah. that that's what we want
1: yeah phil knight too he's put in a billion dollars towards that uh steven your thoughts as you hear all this Bigger flight risk, Jonathan Smith or Dan Lanning? I, I say Jonathan Smith. I agree. I think it's Jonathan Smith. Uh, I think it's just because of the
0: uncertainty of the contract, uncertainty of the university and the program, just what are they going to do in the next couple seasons? And, you know, if it does turn out where Oregon State is in, you know, the Pac-12 with a Washington State and a Colorado State and Air Force and, you know, a lot of the Mountain West schools, I've said a before, like, I think Jonathan Smith's too good of a coach to be in that conference. And, and you know, no disrespect to those other schools, but I think he is. I also think Oregon State is going to try to really go after him, like you said, and throw some money at him because they want to be treated like a Power 5 program. And I think that they can you know, portray that around the nation by saying, look, we got one of the best coaches in the nation. We belong in one of these conferences. Now, I would argue this with Dan Lane. I don't think he's leaving, John. But we talk about like what the thing is that can make Dan Lane leave. There's always a price for somebody. Texas AM and just paid $77 million to Jimbo Fisher to go away. They're going to do whatever they have to do. To get the guy that they want, that's going to be successful, because they have all the money in the world that they can throw at anybody. And I'm not saying Dame Lane is going to leave, because I don't think he's going to. I think he stays at Oregon. But they just paid a guy 77 million to say bye, and we don't want you anymore. They're not going to go cheap on this hire. They are going to throw a lot of money at somebody. I don't know if that's Dame Lane or not, but I think Landing overall is probably going to get a new contract extension at Oregon if he wants it. But I, I you know, there's that always that one in the back of your mind that says, well, maybe they just give him such and such money. That's the security he needs. Wouldn't you
1: go after Coach Prime if you were Texas A&M?
0: He, Isn't that the hire? I think so. I think I think that's the splashy hire that you want, but I also think we've talked about this, John. Like, Is he a great coach yet? Is Dion a great coach? I don't know. I don't know that he is, and it can turn out to be unsuccessful just like the Jimbo Fisher thing. Great at recruiting, can't coach on the field. I think that's the fear. I think with Lanning right now, he's proving he can coach on the field and recruit, right?
1: Keep an eye on it. Let's go to Colin in Portland. Colin, what do you think?
0: I think that if
2: Jonathan Smith ever decides to leave, he will be making the decision that Mike Riley did, where it was the worst decision of their lives to leave.
1: Yeah, look, I, I, I think Riley has got regrets, and I asked him on Friday's show what was the bigger regret, leaving for the NFL or leaving for Nebraska, and he was like, I don't want to play that game. It's a revisionist game. There's no winning that game. But Dennis Erickson, you know, makes no bones about it. He says, worst career decision of my life to leave Oregon State. You know, he left, went to the NFL, didn't have control of his team. He lost, he burned out, he got fired. Um, What didn't go well for him. And I think there's a real risk anytime you make a move, make a career move. There's risk in all of this stuff. I think Dan Lanning stays at Oregon I think Jonathan Smith is a to-be-determined because I think a lot of it hinges on tomorrow in Whitman County Superior Court. Where does Oregon State end up? What kind of resources do they have? Do they have a chance to make the playoff in 2024? What kind of schedule are they playing? You have to answer those questions before he can accurately know whether or not he's, you know, is is this a good job still or not.
0: I I want to ask you about Jonathan Smith, too. We talked about Texas A&M, and you know they're going to make a splashy hire. Is Jonathan Smith splashy enough for a team like Texas A&M? A team like Michigan State in the Big Ten that says, you know what, we went to Corvallis and grabbed this guy. Is, is that a splashing enough hire for those type of schools? Because he's it, good enough to coach there, but is it going to get the fan base going?
1: The, all of these hires are always corrections. And, you know, I like somebody asked me today, would Boise State, you know, would they ever look at a coordinator in the Pac-12? And I say, no, not for this hire right now because they just hired Andy Avalos from Oregon and got burned on it. And they had to fire Avalos. So they'll course correct with by going, you know, either back to Brian Harson, or they'll hire Kellen Moore. They'll go back to their roots. It's it'll be 180 degrees in the opposite direction of picking a coordinator. Texas A&M just just went through Kevin Sumlin and Jimbo Fisher. They will course correct. I think they'll make a substance hire here, and a hire that pacifies the boosters. I think Jonathan Smith should be on their radar. I don't want Oregon State to lose him, but if I was Texas A&M, I would, I would have him on my short list. 503-417-7575. Way in. We didn't even talk about the college football games from last weekend. Or, oh, by the way, how about the big game coming up this weekend? Point spread for the Washington at Oregon State game on Saturday. It opened up at the Huskies being a two, two-and-a-half point favorite on the road. That let line has now flipped. Um, I was really interested in why it flipped and how it flipped and what caused that. And so I reached out to Jay Cornegay, who is uh, the head of the Westgate Superbook in Las Vegas. And I just said to him, what's going on with the Oregon State-Washington line? And he gave me um, a lot of uh, sports book talk about how lines move, but mainly... The cause of that movement in the line was that all the early money was on the Beavers. They are now a a one-to-one-and-a-half-point home favorite. That line has flipped. Steven, uh, did uh, Vegas get it wrong, or what's going on in your mind there?
0: Yeah, I mean, initially, I I think they did get it wrong. I I think Oregon State should be a slight favorite in this game, just based off how they've played and how Washington has looked the last few weeks. And then, of course, you go into Reeser Stadium. like that. I mean, that's... That's the biggest part of this, John, is, you know, Oregon State, they've lost, what, one game in the last two years at or- in Corvallis at State, and that place is going to be rocking. And now the fact that College Game Day decides to shaft them and not go there, I don't know, man. I, I think Oregon State deserves to be fair. I think Oregon State is going to get the win outright, and that crowd is going to be in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, a cowardly move, my thought by ESPN. I wrote it over the weekend. College Game Day, not going to Corvallis, where Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler will be on the call for ABC at 430. But instead, game day will be in Virginia for James Madison and Appalachian State. Um, I think clearly ESPN's college game day running away from the conversation. They don't want trouble. They don't want drama. They know it's going to be a frenzy at Research Stadium. Pat McAfee probably be pelted with uh, corn or whatever Oregon State fans are going to be throwing. and uh, And I think they wanted no part of that. Um, meanwhile, Oregon's got to go to Arizona State, which I thought was a gimme. And then Kenny Dillingham in Arizona State uh, suffocated UCLA. 17-7 was the final. I told you the under was the call there.
0: Easiest bet on the board, I think, right there, John. I mean, you were right on with that one. I mean, I don't know if I think this is going to translate to next week, but I think this is more of a UCLA's quarterback is really yes. bad and maybe a Chip Kelly problem than it is an Arizona State defensive Prowess. Right. Like I think it yeah. might be that, but you were right on with that underman. I mean, we were talking about that was way too many points for UCLA to be laying against an Arizona State team who has shown a lot of fight. Uh and, and you see what Kenny Dillingham does, he's not afraid to pull out anything out of his bag of tricks. He's gonna run any type of play he wants to. So I expect some fun things
1: uh when he goes against Oregon, but yeah, that should be that should be an interesting game as well for the Ducks. Arizona State, I knew a eighteen and a half points was too many. I didn't think Arizona State would win the game, but I had predicted 17-7 UCLA. It was 17-7 ASU. I thought it would be that kind of game because I've seen Chip Kelly. We've all seen Chip Kelly coach in those games where he has a backup, backup quarterback, and he's got a MacGyver it. I watched Oregon, and you know, in a couple of games, they I think they beat UCLA one time, nine to nothing in a game like that. And you just have, I think Chip Kelly knows that. You know, his offense becomes very limited if his quarterback can't play, and he has really struggled this season with quarterback play. Let's go to Mike, who's in Seattle. Mike, what's up, man?
5: Hey, I wanted to talk about ESPN first on the game day. I think with their financial peril that ESPN has, I didn't think they wanted to drive that big old truck and all those props. I think they were in Penn State, weren't they? Or they were in Michigan. I didn't think, it was, I didn't think they wanted to drive them all the way to Corvallis. So that could... could could be have something to do with it. They didn't want to spend that money. Could be. Item two. Jonathan Smith. They were in Georgia. They were. In, you think at, about yeah, his history. Athens. Every yeah. every coach that he has played for and coached around has said that they made big decisions they made big mistakes by leaving. You know, a perfectly good opportunity they had where they were making all the money they will ever ever need. You know, to go to something better. Or on the on the surface it seemed better, but but Coach Smith can retire there in five six seven eight nine ten years. Go live in Coeur d'Alene in the summer. Have all the money he'll ever need. His kids will also graduate from the same high school. And I bet Coach Erickson was in Corvallis this weekend. I know we and yeah, Riley. He was. He was. And yeah. I bet they had a cocktail and said and said, "Hey, um, don't don't go hopping for you know for better opportunities because you know it's fool's gold." What say you?
1: Uh, you know, the thing I was thinking about was Mike Riley. Could he have a third tenure? <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. If Jonathan Smith did decide to leave, could it turn into a third tenure for Mike Riley? Please discuss. No, I, I, look, I think Jonathan Smith, it would be a great story to see him stay right there in Corvallis, coach the Beavers, see them through this time, help, you know, Compete for a college football playoff spot because if they are a group of five conference team in one and two years, I have no doubt Oregon State's going to be at the top of that. But we all know the money's not usually the same in those conferences as it is in Power Five. And I think Jonathan Smith has expressed on this show that he might like to go coach in the NFL one day. So, what's the better stepping stone into the NFL? Is it being at Oregon State and then you know leaving and going on to another job? Is it not? I don't. I don't know. Here's what I need to know first, though, before I can, you know, Mike raises some good points, other callers have as well. Before I can wrap my head around anything, I need to know what Oregon State's doing in 2024. I need to know, I need that piece of the puzzle. Because if Oregon State has a hell of a plan for 2024, and they are going to continue to fund like a Power Five, and let's just say they're going to play as a conference of two, then they're going to try to rebuild the Pac-12, and they're going to have plenty of money and resources because they win tomorrow in court, or the Judge Libby rules in their favor, They've got governance of the conference. It's a way different equation for me than hey, you're simply being relegated to the Mountain West Conference.
0: And, and, and you've mentioned it before, Jimmy Sexton being his agent. That's uh, that's one of those things where he's going to get as much money as he possibly can for his agents. Look at Jimbo Fisher, what he's done for them, Nick Saban, yeah. Kirby Smart. I think I think that's one of those things to look out
1: for too. Yeah, and he's he's got a really good agent, and probably too good. And. So, I, you know, two or three weeks ago I started talking about Oregon State needs to extend Jonathan Smith. I said it, you heard it, and I wrote it, You maybe you read it. I, The fact that there isn't an extension that has been announced has raised a little bit of concern for me as I watch that sort of play out. Now, it may just be that Jonathan Smith wants to know where's Oregon State playing before he signs anything. And so it could just be a matter of tomorrow's court case and then some clarity. Speaking of tomorrow's court case we got an attorney coming up next who's going to tell us what to look for. Leave it here. Well, 24 hours from now, a little bit less than 24 hours from now, Oregon State and Washington State will find themselves in Whitman County Superior Court in front of Judge Gary Leiby. Oregon State and Washington State are seeking clarity on the governance of the Pac-12 Conference they would like to have the board seats and the control of the conference. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, the 10 departing members of the conference, to various degrees, have pushed back. University of Washington, of course, because they're under the jurisdiction of the court. George Kleofkamp, Pac-12 commissioner named a lawsuit. All pushing back. I expect that the judge in this case, Gary Leiby, he may rule from the bench tomorrow. He may decide, you know what, I need some more time with this. I'll get back to you in a day or two. Regardless, I anticipate an appeal. I anticipate that Washington, University of Washington, will continue to ask the Supreme Court of the State of Washington to get involved. This goes way beyond the scope of my expertise. This court stuff is out of my court of comfort. So I reached out to an attorney who deals in such things. Matthew Wand is a uh, graduate of the Northwestern School of Law, Lewis and Clark College. He is an experienced general counsel. He's worked in real estate and construction and industry and private practice and government experience and public policy. And this is a guy that... uh, Not only has a law degree, he's got real experience being in courtrooms like this, dealing with court cases like this. And beyond that, he has a little bit of experience as well as a sports fan, so he kind of understands what's going on with the Pac-12 in general. So I wanted to bring Matthew on to let him kind of give us a little bit of a scouting report, so to speak, on what might go down tomorrow in Colfax, in Whitman County Superior Court, Matthew Wand, attorney at law, joining us now. Matthew, how you doing?
6: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on this afternoon, John.
1: What do you like? What is this like for you? Because I know you're a sports fan. When some legal matters all of a sudden start creeping into, you know, your your normal diversion that is college athletics.
6: This is almost as exciting as uh, me seeing my favorite team in the Pac-12 championship. <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. All right. So, so I've been pouring through documents, discovery, you know, a lot of my text messages with George Klyovkov and emails have popped up in discovery. It's weird for me to see that, but give give me an idea, you know, as you sort of approach this from a legal standpoint, what do you make of it? What's at stake tomorrow? What are you looking for?
6: Well, I hope the first question the judge asks the departing members of the PAC-12 when they start the hearing tomorrow is, do you think you can rescind your withdrawal? Uh, because when, when you look at bylaws like this, the court is required to give effect to all of the sentences of words that are in the written document. And there is there are, are sentences at the beginning of the section and a sentence at the end that use the term notice of withdrawal. and um, you know, there's, there's the potential of having multiple different ways of looking at that phrase. and But it all comes down to, do you guys think you can change your mind? If they say no, we can't change our minds, we're out. There's no way out now. Uh, they're going to have a long day.
1: Why is that?
6: The court has to interpret, I don't want to be too boring, but the court has to interpret the words on the page, and they have to give effect to every sentence. And the the only time they get to consider uh, the, what is subjectively in somebody's mind is if the words on the page are ambiguous, right? If it has more than one reasonable meaning, then the court can look into a course of conduct and uh, what the parties intended and other types of uh, maxims of construction, what we call them. So it, it seems to me that uh, if the withdrawing schools admit that they can't change their minds, then all of the discussion about what might happen, what Oregon State and Washington State might do, how it might hurt them financially or in the future, those things don't matter. The last sentence really says the whole story. If you depart, if you tell us you're leaving, then you don't get to be on the board of directors anymore.
1: Is there a way that – because I think the big concern for the 10 departing members is that Oregon State, Washington State are going to get control of the board, and they're going to say, hey, the $420 million that's coming in this year that everybody thought they were entitled to, well, we're not going to share that equally. It, is there a way to protect – can the judge kind of walk the middle ground and say, look, I'm going to give the board seats to Oregon State, Washington State, but – you can't act uh, you know, in a non-fiduciary way towards the other ten members between now and when they depart.
6: Yeah, but remember, this isn't the this isn't the only kick at the can, so to speak. So the the question before the judge tomorrow will be to decide whether for the next fourteen days or, or three months until the Court of Appeals can get their hands on it, who's on the board of directors? Mm -hmm. and um, and, and the judge is going to make that call. Uh, Hopefully he – I mean, it was shocking to me when he ruled from the bench on the temporary restraining order, so I expect that he's likely to do the same thing. And um, if there are questions about how OSU and WSU are exercising their power, there are plenty of future opportunities for the departing members to be heard on those issues. So they can come back to court and say, we don't like this decision. Um, And and the judge will have the opportunity to rule on it. But the the key problem with what's going on right now is that the PAC-12 is paralyzed because they don't know who's in charge. And that's what the judge needs to prevent is is a very important, you know, multiple state association being totally paralyzed with hundreds of millions of dollars on the line.
1: Matthew Wand is with us, attorney, Lewis and Clark, uh, graduate law school. Uh, Matthew, give me an idea. You know, we we have heard all along that mediation is going on uh, parallel to the preparation and the discovery. And originally I was told by both attorneys on both sides that, no, we're far away. Now they're saying we can't disclose that. I kind of wonder, is there a settlement? Give us an idea of kind of. How that works? How the mediation and the settlement discussions work in parallel to the litigation?
6: Yeah, most cases do settle before there's a decision at, at trial or a decision by a judge. And um, if you look through the if you look right through the bylaws, I have you know there the the member schools and the board of directors can make amendments and can make decisions. And so uh, you know, I imagine what they're doing is talking about where the money's going to go, how much is this is going to hurt Oregon State and Washington State. Um, and, and keep in mind, too, that the clock is ticking here. Um, the disillusioned section of the bylaws say that only members get an equal share of the assets. So if, as soon as this notice to withdraw becomes uh, final in you know sometime next summer, July 1st or August 1st, depending on how you read it, um, if the pac dissolves after that, none of the departing schools get anything Ooh. so they would only be entitled to what they would otherwise receive between now and then which is their share of the 420 million uh along the way though the um, Oregon state and Washington state has to think about potential liabilities from the from the lawsuit in the bay area yeah uh, and, and what happens if, you know we've got a Comcast payment that they're going to have to make because of the overpayments during the the, the prior administration All of those things have to be talked about and considered and the board of directors is not only entitled but obligated to hold back whatever money is necessary in order to cover those debts and obligations. So the notion that the departing schools can just take their their normal percentage like they always would and move along their happy very way, that doesn't make any sense at all because nobody knows how much revenue the pac 12 will have in the future to cover those unknown liabilities.
1: Matthew, I you know, George Klyovkov is in the middle of this as well. He doesn't appear to be contesting anything, and he is, is sort of indicated that to the court. What does he mean by he's not contesting this, but yet he's a party to the lawsuit?
6: Well, he, he has to be a party to the lawsuit because he was one of the people taking an action that they were trying to stop. Right? He sent the email and said, I'm inviting all of these departing members to sit in and, and vote at this meeting. I, I don't I don't agree. Uh, I mean, he may say that he's not taking a position or that he doesn't have a, an opinion on the matter, but his actions say differently when you read through his emails. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear he doesn't want Oregon State and Washington State to be in charge. He wants the departing schools to be there as well, and I don't know why. I, I can't speculate as to why, but it, it really looks to me like his actions are suggesting he wants the protection of those other schools and uh, maybe he maybe he figures that it it'll help him with his severance pay
1: yeah maybe maybe he you know that was a <laughs> that was a weird thing too for me if we, if we can just have a conversation here is you know he appeared didn't appear I mean he out and out told me and and it it's in the discovery he texted me and he said when they were down to Stanford and Cal and Oregon State and Washington State, he texted me, we're down to, you know, I have four board members. That appears in the discovery, and I was not surprised, like, to see it in there because I thought, I was looking back through my messages with him, and I thought, gosh, he, he said, like, he acknowledged on the day after all the schools left that he was down to four board members, and now he is trying to jump to the other side of it, and I just can't understand you know, what legal advice he got that caused him to, to, you know, move to the other side of the river, so to speak.
6: Well, maybe it was, maybe it was practical advice, but, but keep in mind, too, John, if, if, if the court decides that this provision has multiple meanings that are all reasonable, okay, then the court can and must look at other pieces of evidence to decide what it means and who should win, and one of those key pieces of evidence, is the conduct of the parties before they understood that they were going to have this dispute. That is extremely powerful evidence for what the parties intended when they when they wrote out and agreed to the bylaws. And in this instance, going back almost two years now, we all know what they believed because they they acted on it with USC and UCLA and then followed up with it in writing and affidavits and declarations and under oath. Everybody knows what they thought at the time, and they're only changing their position now because they're scared that the chickens have come home to roost and they might lose out on some cash.
1: It's fascinating to me. As we talk about the two sort of piles of money, you know, the, the media rights revenue distributions for this year from uh, playoff and NCAA tournament distributions in this fiscal year, of course, the liabilities of Comcast, the lawsuits, seem to be on one side for me. And then on the other side, it's future revenue, everything that's happening after July of 2024. Is it really that clear? Or you had mentioned earlier sort of, you know, the board members have into account for, you know, the potential liabilities. Like, is it—is there—is there a little murkiness in the middle for you, or do you see a line of delineation on July 1, 2024?
6: Yeah, well... It- It's a little bit of both. There is a a line on July 1 of 2024, but there are also multiple provisions throughout the bylaws that allow the Board of Directors to hold back money in order to to account for um, liabilities, unknown liabilities in some instances. I I mean, it's not like these departing members are going to, to be entitled to revenues for the next 10 years so that if there's another Comcast fiasco, for example, uh-huh. That they can just kind of take a haircut for the next ten years and pay that debt off, they're gone, and and so the, the, the remaining members have to take that into account. They have obli- they have fiduciary obligations to take those types of issues into account because they. I mean, what are they going to do? Go go sue USC in Southern right. California and say you owe us five million bucks on this liability? Like that's not going to happen. So they have to be responsible with the cash that's there. Uh, now, now they have, a, they have a lot of other assets as well, of course, right? They have the PAC 12 network. There's some assets there. And, and, and if they really needed the fire sale to cover debt, they could. But that doesn't mean that it's prudent for them to send all the cash out the door and then hope for the best.
1: We're talking to Matthew Wand. He is an attorney. Uh, he specializes in these kinds of cases. This is right in his wheelhouse, not so much in mine. Matthew, let me ask you, on the idea of notice of withdrawal, you've read the bylaws. Washington, USC, UCLA, they've issued news releases, they've talked publicly about it. Um, I've noticed there are, there are some semantics games being played by some of the parties where they're saying, you know, we intend, to, we intend to join the Big Ten Conference, not, you know, we have joined already. What constitutes notice of withdrawal, and how did you read the bylaws well, in, that, in that sense?
6: the first answer to the question is that notice of withdrawal isn't defined clearly in the Bible. There's there's no definition section that doesn't say this is what it means. But, it, it, and then when you look at section 2.3, it suggests differing meanings in different sentences. So, for example, in, in the first part it says notice of withdrawal uh, prior to August uh, 1st, 2024 is a violation. You can get an injunction and then, you know, the conference can sue you for damages. It seems like in that sentence, notice of withdrawal means you've pulled your teams out of the conference and they're not playing this season. But then when you go down to the sentence that actually matters for for this case, where they talk about if a member delivers notice of withdrawal in violation of this chapter, then you lose your seat on the board of directors, that doesn't talk about money damages. It just says you're out on the board of directors, and that seems to me that it's, it's kind of an irrevocable withdrawal on a future date right and so 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 when I look at it in the this wasn't written perfectly but it seems to me and and the judge could make this decision if he wanted to he could say you know I think you gave a notice of withdrawal that's irrevocable and effective in the future so you've lost your board seat but since your teams are still playing and you're still following through with your other obligations to the conference, then these other remedies that are in Section 3 are not applicable, and they just don't matter. Uh, I haven't seen, I mean, the lawyers haven't made that, that argument directly in quite that way, but um, that seems to be a, a prudent way of looking at those particular sections that that could end up ruining the day.
1: What does the actions of the board, or how does that play into maybe Judge Libby's decision, given, you know, when UCLA and USC left, they were not allowed to sit in on board meetings or have a vote. When Colorado left, same thing. Um, you know, k- k- will that be held up by Oregon State and Washington State as evidence of, hey, forget what the bylaws say or the ambiguity in the bylaws, this is what actually happened. Does the precedent or the status quo, does that matter?
6: Yes, and, and there's a concept in the law called unclean hands, and what that says is that when you come to a court in equity, if you have acted unfairly or dishonestly, then, then the court is is, less, is not likely to give you the relief that you're asking for, all Right? And, and in this instance, these members were obligated in other sections of the bylaws to act in good faith, to act openly and transparently and honestly with the other members. I don't think there's any question that the 10 departing schools acted in secrecy and not in good faith in dealing with the PAC-12 conference. And so now when they're complaining that they might, that they might be treated unfairly by the two schools that are left holding the bag, it not only rings hollow from a practical sense, but also from a legal sense. Um, the court is likely, I think should, Uh, consider that the two schools that have been acting honestly and openly from the very beginning and consistently are the ones more likely to continue to do so in the future and treat the departing schools fairly than the ones that were making deals in the back room were in secrecy
1: that's fantastic insight we're talking to Matthew Wand Uh, I have so many other questions that I mainly though just want to get from you 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 mentioned Judge Gary Leiby, he ruled from the bench on the temporary restraining order. You think he'll again do that, or how how frequent or how common is that for a judge in a case like this to just rule from the bench, or uh, or maybe say, "Hey, I need some time with it."
6: Uh, you know, I I guess it's I can't tell you how many times I've sat at counsel table and, and had my my uh, chest drop into my stomach when the court says, "I'm just going to rule from the bench." Uh, I mean it's, it's a scary prospect but considering the thoughtfulness of the briefs and the the simplicity of the issue from a legal standpoint right it's not like the judge needs to go and research and read 50 different cases from around the country to help him make this decision um, because of that I think it's 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 possible I think about a 60 40 maybe 70 30 chance that he rules from the bench and then maybe follows up with a written decision, a written opinion, because when they go when they go to the appeal, he's going to want to have his reasoning clearly laid out in writing, so that the court of appeals can consider it and make their decision uh, with the benefit of his full legal reasoning. Um, and, and if he, you know, if he just rules from the bench and doesn't write anything out, uh, it, it's not as strong uh, of an opinion on
1: appeal. Matthew, um, you've been fantastic here. I just have a couple more, if you don't mind hanging out yeah, for a I, minute more. But, of course. Um, you've been there. Okay, so you mentioned being in the courtroom, your heart drops. Can you get a sense generally when you're in court of what the judge is going to do based on the questions and kind of the tone of the questioning, or is that, you know, 50-50? You
0: know, it's,
6: I, I can. it's, it's easy. I mean, it's easier for me. To have that insight, and when I'm playing poker with strangers, um, <laughs> you you can get an idea, <laughs> you know. You, you know like, for example, the, the judge is always going to want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to make their record, so everybody gets to make their argument. He's probably not going to cut people off, and certainly not in a rude way. Not not in this case, anyway. Um, you know, but if he, if he starts, you know, kind of moving people along, and, and um, you know, often when they understand the winning side's arguments, they'll kind of shorten their time just a little bit. And when the when the person they think is likely to lose stands up, uh, they probably probe them a, a, a little bit more, uh, if, try to expose the weaknesses in their arguments. Mm. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, you, you kind of get a flavor uh, for which way the judge is leaning based on the questions and, and who's getting cut off and who isn't.
1: All right, so I've read the briefs. I've looked at the discovery. Um, I uh, I think the attorneys on both sides are, are probably really good at what they do. But I want to know from your standpoint, as you read the briefs, what's the strongest argument for the 10 departing schools?
6: There's, I think they're probably the strongest argument is that there are, that there is an ambiguity in this section about withdrawal and that the ambiguity um, should lead the court to have a greater direct involvement in the ongoing management of the PAC-12. I, I don't think that they have really very strong arguments to retain their seats, right? So I think for, if I'm a departing, if I'm a member representing, or if I'm a lawyer representing the departing school, in my mind, a home run is if the judge maintains some sort of control, and a very easy way for me to run back into court if I don't like what's going on, you know, kind of continuing oversight. Um, but as far as if just denying all relief and having the court say, yeah, I, I think all 12 years still on the, the board of directors and. Uh, Clive Poff is right, and he can he can bring you all in. I I just don't see it.
1: I appreciate you. I am going to be in court tomorrow, and I don't know if I am going to need a pillow or I am going to be on the edge of my seat. But I feel like I am smarter already after talking with you. Is there anything I should be listening for, looking for that that you are interested in? Like you know, if from your legal standpoint, a legal mind thinking this.
6: The, the, the questions that the judge asks are are just, they're, they're the whole, thing. like, you'll be able to tell what the judge is concerned about in his logic and in his legal reasoning with 100% certainty based upon the questions that he asks. And so if he's not asking any questions at all, for example, about, you know, the last sentence or about the particular format for a notice of withdrawal, then you know that that's something he's already decided. Maybe you've lost that. Maybe you've won that, but he's already figured it out. So I I would pay attention to the questions and and try and create a little, you know, write the X's and O's on your notepad based on what he's asking. And then you'll know if it's a cover two or a, or a man to man.
1: (laughs) I love it. Uh, you have a prediction what you think will happen?
6: Yeah, I think, I think he rules that, that the two are in charge. Um, And I think he probably opens the door for some sort of of an expedited, hey, if you departing schools think you're being treated unfairly, come see me and I'll give you a hearing within 24 hours type of thing. Um, I I think that's the most likely outcome. But the the arguments about the calendar and, you know, December 4th being a real thing, and we need to make decisions now because if we don't, college athletes will be negatively impacted, those are so compelling in terms of irreparable injury. I, I just don't see this dragging out, and I don't see him allowing for 12 schools to get in a, in a mud wrestling match um, all the while watching the, the student-athletes get hurt. So I, I think he's going to make that call. He's going to remind them about their fiduciary obligations, and and, and then he's going to maintain some control. But they're, they're going to get to make the decisions they need to make as the remaining schools. And, and you know, the worst outcome would be this limbo that we're all living in for the last eight weeks. Like that's the worst outcome. I don't think this judge is prepared to allow that to happen.
1: Matthew Wand, I appreciate you. Thank your parents, for that's sending you tough. to law school for me. I, uh, I, I'm benefiting from that.
6: All <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's do it again sometime.
1: All right. Thank you. There he is. See? I feel smarter. My head was spinning. 366 pages of discovery. I read the briefs. I thought, hey, both sides are making really good points here. Um, I want you to mull that over and know that I will be there tomorrow in Whitman County Superior Court. I'll be there with Judge Libby. I will be uh, joining this radio show. If I can step out of the courtroom, i got to be honest with you, I don't know if they're going to take a recess here or there. If they do, I will step out. I'll call into the show. And uh, we'll be tracking it all right here on this radio program. And you can read it all at johnconzano.com. Great stuff from the attorney. Anna's popping in the studio. Punch it audio five at five all of that's still ahead well we heard from a legal expert um, and I'm fat I've already feel smarter Anna you uh, you're used to talking to experts that's what you do that's what you've done for years um, give me an idea you know we got Matthew Wand attorney who comes on the show and he says all right here's what I'm looking for he made it very simple for me I don't know about for you Stephen but Anna I'm I was really conflicted about do I need to be in court? Even yesterday, in, over the weekend, as I was talking to the attorneys, I'm a little concerned that they're going to come up with a settlement before the judge gets to this case at uh, about 2 o'clock Pacific time tomorrow. And, um, you know, you and I were kind of kicking, kicking it around. Why is it important that I'm there?
7: Well, I mean, I think being there in person makes a big difference, especially in a case like this where you can... Get on the ground, talk to the players involved, the players being, you know, the plaintiffs and the defendants in the case, and just kind of get a feel. Like you can only, as we've learned with COVID and Zoom calls, you can only accomplish so much watching something via Zoom, Uh, especially as a journalist. There's a lot of nuances that you would miss um, by not having a presence in that courtroom.
1: I, um, You've been in those situations. Yeah. Lots. I asked Judge Libby. I was on the phone with him a couple of weeks ago, and I said, do I need to make a reservation? <laughs> do I need a media credential? And he says, nope, it's a public courtroom. Just show up early. It's going to be packed.
7: Which, by the way, can we just appreciate how unusual it is that you would get not only the judge on the phone, but before the judge on the phone talked to... You know trudy his wife like this is not a typical situation this is definitely something that occurred because it's happening in colfax and uh you know i just i I found it really interesting because most judges in a case like that would not be comfortable talking to a journalist and so he had to have some trust and understanding and there must have been a way that you addressed that whole situation, that he was comfortable talking with you about everything besides the actual case. Like, he understood what your mission was in, in writing what you wrote.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, he's a 72-year-old guy. Yeah. He's going to retire, right. by the way, at the end of the year. Yeah. So this is kind of it for him. Yeah. And, and he finds himself, he, you know, he's been in Colfax here in cases in Whitman County involving, you know, probably agricultural disputes and you know, off, uh, well, yeah and yeah in
7: lo- lots of cases yeah. involving Washington state his well, alma mater. Yeah. he said so, that
1: and yeah. i said how do you how he said how do you stay impartial right? he goes well he goes i treat him like anyone else right you know he also had a capital murder case wow. recently and then i didn't know this but these small town judges will often be a visiting judge for another county okay because there are multiple cases. First of all, some of the courts just get overwhelmed because mm-hmm. they only have one judge. Right? They get overwhelmed if, like, there's an uh, like a glut of cases, mm-hmm. or if there's a case that is high enough profile that you know the judge knows the people involved. Yeah. The judge has to recuse themselves, so you get a visiting judge. So he has done a lot of that, and he said he started it during COVID, and he says I guess I shouldn't have done that. He says because I'm doing it often now. So these judges will all hear cases in different counties so that they can, you know, basically uh, help out another courtroom, so to speak.
7: Well, you know, and I guess a lot of people might look at this and and cynically say, well, why why make the effort to fly to Colfax? You know, because the effort to get there and even to get back is not particularly easy. So it's like, why invest the time, energy, and resource into doing that? And to me, it's because... (laughs) This is really like important. It's hella important. Like this is the future of what's left of the Pac-12. And and especially for people who are following it as hus- as not Husky fans as um, Cougar fans and as Beaver fans, you know, this really is going to dictate what they have at their disposal moving forward to cobble together some semblance of a conference and stay relevant.
1: Yeah. He uh, the attorney gave me just great, I think, clarification on what's at stake and what the judge will say or do and, you know, his little tip to that, you know, you can generally on a notepad keep score, pay attention to what the judge is asking and you can tell where the judge is going and what questions he has or how much time he gives to each side i noticed in the temporary restraining order hearing he gave a like a really extended opportunity for the attorneys for the 10 departing schools to speak about um you know their reasons Mm -hmm. like he really gave them a lot of room sure and i thought gosh why is he being overly fair to them well it makes sense now because he said you know as this attorney matthew wand was telling us that he said hey um you know, the judge is basically letting everyone see the hole in their argument when when they're giving more time to one side or the other.
7: Hmm. That's an interesting take. Yeah. Well, and I have to assume going into a hearing like this, the judge has already read, like, the bulk of the material that is being presented. It's kind of like what we saw the first time around. He already had read everything, and he kind of had an idea Going into court that day the first time of what he would rule. Am I am I wrong about no, that? No,
1: in fact the attorney said that. He said the briefs, all of the briefs. I've read both sides. And I have to say, I think both sides are doing a nice job defending oh, really? de- Yeah. I mean yeah. like as a writer, I'm yeah. reading that and I'm like, you know what? These guys aren't bad. You yeah. know?
7: Yeah. yeah. These guys went to law school you know, or something.
1: It's a little uh, they it's sound a little like they know. Yeah, but it's a little dry.
7: Yeah, of course you know it
1: needs a little bit of spicing up yeah you know like it needs a little bit of leg, you know <laughs> show some leg. yeah that's what I'm saying. It's a little
7: ankle <laughs>
1: yeah just you know they, they basically are uh, showing <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I just want to see a little leg you know <laughs> like but I think uh, I think in the end I'm looking at it going okay the, the 10 departing schools are basically saying, hey, we didn't give notice of withdrawal. It's really ambiguous. You know, there's no definition for it.
7: Are they really saying
1: that, just, though? Just tweeting it or just saying, hey, in a news release, isn't the official notice of withdrawal. And the, and the two schools that are left behind are going, it's what UCLA and USC did, and we didn't give them board seats. It's what Colorado did, and we kicked them out, too. So that is one of the matters that's up in the air. What is notice of withdrawal?
7: But, like, for anyone with half a brain... I know. And maybe this is one of those things that winds up being, like, a legal technicality. But, like, for any reasonable person, they gave plenty of notice that they were leaving. Like, yeah. they they told everybody in a myriad of manners. It's like, just, whether uh, it was social yeah. media, press releases, press conferences, one-on-one interviews. Like, there was no secret about the fact that they were leaving. So, I guess it makes me just as a bystander here genuinely curious about the depth of that argument and whether that holds any water because i i don't know maybe it just comes down to the contract language of the actual conference and how it is designed
1: the the attorney brought up an interesting concept clean hands and saying that you know when it comes to the 10 departing schools the discovery does show that the 10 departing schools were making plans you know it wasn't like the the Big Ten called on that Friday morning, and Oregon went, "Oh, that sounds good. We're out." No, this like it. The discovery shows they were making plans. Now, the University of making Washington making plans for what? They were talking to other parties that they were talking to the Big Twelve. Oh, some of the members plans yeah. to leave. Well, they were all they were all working on contingency plans and yeah. whatnot, and in the end, they exercised them. Sure, but it shows that Washington State and Oregon State signed the grant of rights on the Thursday night before the meeting. They, Washington State and, and Oregon, State. Oregon State. They acted in good faith, mm-hmm. and you know Matthew, Wan, the uh, attorney, sort of raised that as like you know how mu- how much credence that carries in a courtroom when you've got two schools that are abiding by the by the uh, directives of the of the bylaws, and you have ten members that are kind of skirting it and looking out for themselves. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how the judge interprets that as that all went down.
7: I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I probably yeah. maybe I That's am fine. here I with care. this question. It's my show, I don't care. So you said you read, you know, the briefs that have been submitted. Yeah, both how sides. much of the argument it, for the schools that have left or are in the process of leaving, how much of their arguments is simply like, "Hey, we had to do what was best um, you know, as far as like fiduciarily. For our organization, we this was this was really a situation where, you know, how like um, stockholders like a a board for like a major corporation will say, hey, you know, we had to go with the hostile takeover because fiduciary wise, we were bound to do what was best for, you know, the people who own stock. Like how much of the argument or is that even uh, is that it's not really
1: because the biggest question is who should be in charge of the board? Mm hmm moving like right now in the next the 30 conference. days the pac-12 conference board, board. Who, who's making the decisions because yeah. this conference right now is paralyzed it it they can't really make a decision you know unless the only thing they can they can do is if they all 12 just dis- agree unanimously on something they can do it that's okay. that's the that's the directive that judge liby gave them now i'll tell you what does show up in the briefs like some of that shows up in the exhibits yeah, yeah, Where you have Anna Marie Kasse, the president at Washington, writing a letter, wrote a letter to me, wrote a letter to other people, basically saying, hey, we're doing what's best for ourselves, whatnot, and whatever. It Also in the discovery are emails between Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, and Jyothi Murthy, the president at Oregon State, showing that they were trying to do what was best for them, too. They were talking to the ACC and the Big 12 as everything was unfolding and sort of falling apart. Like, they were, they were scrambling to try to figure out where they fit um, and and how they were going to land on their feet. And so I think all of that is kind of in there. Okay, I have another question yeah. then. I mean, we've kicked around the idea
7: of this settlement, which hopefully if there is one, you hear about it before you actually get on a plane to Colfax eh, tomorrow. Yeah. But, you know. Um, Live and die with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what would a settlement even look like that's what i have no idea like
1: well here's what it would look like i asked i talked to both attorneys on both sides
7: what are the possibilities so
1: here there's three possibilities there's only three possibilities that both attorneys agreed on okay number one is oregon state and washington state get control of the board that's one outcome that could happen in court and it could happen in a settlement they're given control of the board the departing schools um you know are given a requirement that is a uh, uh, basically there's a requirement in place that says they can't run roughshod mm-hmm. over the 10 departing schools mm-hmm. or the 10 backstabbers as they're called in some cases mm-hmm. um, so they basically outcome one is mm-hmm. Oregon State Washington State get control of the board but there's a there's a uh, clause added that says you can't run roughshod over the rest yeah roughshod. they still have to be responsible okay. number two okay. thing that could happen mm-hmm. and by the way uh, if Oregon State, and Washington State are given control of the board. Yes. In a settlement, that would be better than by a verdict of the judge. Oh. Because a verdict of the judge would r- result in an immediate appeal.
5: Oh, okay. By
1: the other schools, Got which it. would drag it out a little longer. Yes. Okay. Number two that could happen. Okay. Is the judge may not rule. He may say, I need some time with this. I'm folksy. I'm laid back. I've got to go to a picnic this afternoon, and I'm not going to be able to rule on this immediately. He may walk out, but he may indicate which way the wind's blowing in encouraging the sides to reach a settlement before he rules. Interesting. That is a possibility that both sides have addressed, that the judge may give an indication. Here's what I might be doing, Uh but I'm going to go think about it some more, and I'll get back to you guys in 24 hours. Basically signaling to the sides, it'd be much better if you guys settled, settled this. this. You know which way I'm going to rule.
7: Interesting. Okay. So outcome, so far my money's yeah. on that.
1: Outcome three. Okay. He could rule that the 10 departing schools win. Uh-huh. And they maintain their board seats. And he could deny Oregon State and Washington State their control of the conference. I don't think that's what's going to happen. And guess what? I, I heard both sides say they thought that was the least likely outcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I kind of am leaning towards a settlement. Well, because, because any
7: reasonable yeah. person looking at yeah. the body of evidence, and I know this isn't a criminal case, so yeah. it's just I'm used, using the wrong word there, but any reasonable person looks at what has happened up to this point and how the conference behaved with the early members yeah. who left and how quickly they were to dismiss them from decision-making yeah. meetings. And it's like, that has to be an indicator of, you know, how the
1: judge will rule. In part of the brief for the 10 departing schools, they demand the money. Yeah, so, they, yeah, the they, money. They what about want, the money? They want the money. Uh-huh. They say it. Leave it here. Anna's in the studio, 5 at 5, coming up top of the hour. We've been talking a lot about um, the court case tomorrow that will take place in Whitman County Superior Court. Anything? Any final thoughts on that, Anna, that you want to close the loop on?
7: Well, I just wanted to check in with, like, Stephen, if it was even interesting, because I do want to ask about the money. I want
1: to know about the money. Why do you have to say it like that, the money? Why do you have to say it like that?
7: <laughs> Stephen, Desperately trying this, to be that, cool. Isn't
1: that how you say it, the money? Yeah. Stephen's, Stephen kinda, Stephen's a good test for this. Right. Well he's a good litmus test. Do for most people things.
0: care about this? Um, I think that people care about the outcome of it. I don't know that we necessarily care a whole bunch about like the how it gets there, but I think we're really gonna be interested to see how this ultimately ends out, right? Like I think just
1: Show me the baby.
0: Yes, the conclusion of it all, because you've been on you've been on the case, I mean, since the beginning, right? Like since you know, back, uh summer and a half ago. That's or, why I got to be there. That's why you got to be there. Like, you have to see it to the very end. And I think... got to be in the delivery room. I agree. And so I, I think for, you know, for people like me, I think we just want to see what the actual conclusion is um, and then see
1: how the money gets distributed. Say that, Anna? Yes. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. Okay,
7: okay. okay. So then, then just on the last point then about the money, what is... What is Like, how does that break down? Is it kind of one or the other? Like, Washington State and Oregon State get all the money, or it's evenly distributed between all 12
1: schools? Let's just talk about what the money is. Between now and July of 2024, the PAC-12 will distribute $420 million in revenue to 12 members. Okay. Okay. Breaks down to 30 plus million per school. Okay. Okay. That includes the media rights money, NCAA tournament money that's paid out for this, this fiscal year, mm-hmm. college football playoff money. If Oregon or Washington go to the playoff, it includes extra money. Mm-hmm. All 12 will split it equally under the bylaws. Okay. 420 million. Okay. People hear the number 360 million. It's because Oregon state, and Washington state are being subtracted.
7: Mm-hmm. Okay?
1: okay. So it's four twenty for all 12 Mm -hmm. then there's money beyond july 2024 Mm -hmm. it's ncaa tournament revenues of about 60 million dollars a year okay it's whatever's left in the emergency fund it's also um college football playoff revenues Mm -hmm. and it's rose bowl equivalency money of 50 million a year over three more years so
7: there's a lot at stake
1: 170 million total okay beyond so there's two piles of money yeah so it'll be interesting. The judge can kind of go, hey, you shouldn't harm the 10 departing schools. Everybody should split that money. Act in their best interest. Or, but, but the attorney pointed out, he says, there's potential liabilities for Oregon State and Washington State that Oregon State and Washington State might have to set money aside for. There's a lawsuit. Two employees got fired. Mm-hmm. There's a Comcast fiasco. We've got to make sure that's settled. Make sure nothing else is coming up. So <laughs> there's, there's a, a chance to split the baby, so to speak. <laughs> Back to the baby. All energy. right. <laughs> All right. Five and five is coming up. Jim Harbaugh, Aaron Rodgers. What else? Leave it here. It's the Broncos and the Buffalo Bills on Monday Night Football. Steven, you're leaning Broncos, aren't you? Oh, yeah. You know me too well. I knew it. Why me, do you like the Broncos?
0: Give me the points, man. No. Uh, I I, you know, I have a hard time going and not taking points. But I also think that the Bills, they kind of proven to be mediocre at best. I don't yeah. think that they're going to improve that much and so I think Denver's playing a lot better than they were at the start of the year so give me yeah. over a touchdown.
1: I'll take it. Bright Lights Monday Night Football coming up. Speaking of the Bright Lights, ESPN's college football game day. College game day. Turning its back on the 10 and 0 Washington Huskies playing at the 8 and 2 Oregon State Beavers on Saturday. It is the game in college football. Number 5 against number 12? Maybe number 10? It's a huge game in the Pac-12. Last Pac-12 game as we know it at Research Stadium. And I'm left thinking and wondering, what happened to College Game Day? It used to be a great show. It's lost so many smart people. And replaced all of that with Pat McAfee and a bunch of carnival barking. It's just not the show that it used to be. And it's obvious that ESPN does not want any part of the discussion that's going to go on in Corvallis on that Saturday. What happened to the Pac-12 in the wake of a big court case on Tuesday and a court hearing on Tuesday? It was the perfect setting, and Kirk Herbstreet and Crix Fowler are calling the game for ABC, and they're going to make poor Herbie get on a plane in Virginia after he does college game day and fly across the country, five hours and seven minutes, oh, I looked it up, and land at an airfield in Corvallis, and then call the game at 4.30. Like, I'm going to bring Herbie a uh, coffee. Uh, it's not his fault. I'm not blaming him. I think, just, I think ESPN's college game day show has lost its compass. It doesn't know where it's going, and it's hiding out behind the Jonas Brothers, no less. They had the Jonas Brothers announce that they're going to Virginia, to be on the show. What has that show turned into? It used to be the epicenter of college football and no more. I'm disappointed with ESPN, disappointed with game day. You know what? I'm not going to watch. I'm not going to watch on Saturday. Turn my back on them like they turn their back on the Pac-12. Let's do the 5 at 5. Here's Anna. The 5 at 5. Giddy up. Here we go. I was waiting for you to fire Number the Number one. Oh, you're getting rid of it. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm just, you know, we're a <laughs> little tight on time today. Okay. Number fine. one. <laughs> well. Don't make me regret this.
7: Texas A&M needs a replacement for Jimbo Fisher. And I got to tell you, I was not happy to see the picture of Dan Lanning on, like, all of the articles today suggesting uh, coaches to replace Jimbo Fisher. like He's mentioned uh, as one of the top picks. Texas San Antonio coach Jeff Trailer, Florida State's Mike Norvell, uh, Kalen DeBoer, uh, Duke coach Mike Elko. These are all the names being discussed. No
1: coach prime, huh, at this point? Uh, Dan Lanning, uh, this is what he said after the, the win over USC. How about
3: that crowd? Absolutely electric group. Um, made that really special. It was fun to sit out there and watch Two elite quarterbacks battle it out. You know, obviously we've got a really special one on our sideline. I think that's a Heisman-worthy performance from Bo. And uh, fun to do it in front of you know fifth uh, largest crowd ever here in Autzen Stadium. So we knew that it was a talented team. We knew that they were dangerous and they had the ability to uh, come back. So I don't know that anybody ever felt relaxed. You know, disappointed a little bit with our finish because I think we're a much better team uh, than what we showed down the stretch.
1: Look, I play that because he's locked in. He's got a mission in Eugene. He's got three kids who are middle school down to elementary school. They've moved seven times in 13 years. He and his wife, I don't see them going anywhere in the short term.
7: Number two, (laughs) Uh, interesting turn of events. You remember the uh, Colorado stuff that was stolen when they went to the Rose Bowl to play UCLA? Not just
1: stuff, it's jewelry.
7: Well, yeah, among the items, jewelry. Well, it turns out. Pasadena police are confirming the items were stolen by high school recruits who were there on an official visit to UCLA. Oh boy.
1: Wow, wow! The one
7: website on three is saying the players are believed to attend Beaumont High School in Riverside County. So uh, I don't know how hard that's going to be to figure out who they are, even though they haven't been would identified. Would you? Would you
1: take one of those kids on your team? Heck no! After knowing that, no. Nope. Well, I
7: mean, you know, innocent till convicted, right? How fast
1: but. are they? How, you know, how, how good are they? Oh, no, I wouldn't take them on my team. You know, that's what's going to happen with college coaches everywhere. But hope there's a lesson to be learned. I hope the jewelry gets back to the rightful loners. Yeah. Number three. Um,
7: Arizona State Athletics Director Ray Anderson announcing oh, yeah. the resignation. I guess fans have been lobbying this for a couple of years. Uh, they weren't happy with him. He's been under fire since the hiring of Herm Edwards. But he's actually been the AD since 2014. Now, he and Herm Edwards... long time association because he was, yeah. he was Edwards his agent, agent was during his agent. the NFL day. So yeah. he's managed to hang on for a long time. You and I
1: got on an elevator at Pac Twelve Media Day oh, a few yeah, years ago. Ray good. Anderson and right. Herm Edwards were both in the elevator. Yeah. Agent, former agent, A D. Yeah. You know?
7: That was a comfortable it's conversation. Not what
1: you know. It's who you know. <laughs> okay? Uh, look, it's this was overdue. It, it, the coach he hired got in trouble with the NCAA. Ray Anderson needed to get away from Arizona State. It's better off without him. This, this, I think, helps Arizona State not just in football, but in basketball. Remember, Bobby Hurley had an issue with Ray Anderson as well. Ray Anderson had a booster that, was, that made Bobby Hurley's wife uncomfortable at basketball games. Mm-hmm. He was a little touchy-feely, mm-hmm. and Anderson wouldn't do anything about it. Hurley about was all that. fired up about mm-hmm. it. it. This is good for Arizona State. Get Ray Anderson out of the way, out of the picture. Number four.
7: four. Uh, Jim Harbaugh doubling down. He uh, spoke to reporters today for the first time since the Big Ten suspended him from game day coaching duties for the rest of the regular season. And he's saying that Michigan should be uh, America's team.
2: Perseverance, you know, and then the just the stalwartness of these guys. I mean, yeah, Watson, I would have to say, I mean, everybody. It's got to be America's team. It's got to be America's team. America. America loves a team that, that uh, you know, beats the odds, beats the adversity, you know, overcomes what the naysayers and, you know, critics, so-called experts think. Um, that's my favorite kind of team. And, yeah, watching it from, from that view on the television, it was finally people get to see what I see every day,
1: you know, in these players and these coaches. I think he sounds a little lost. He's trying to cast Michigan as an underdog. I got news for you, Jim Harbaugh. You're not an underdog. You're not uh, scrappy and inspired. You know, I think there's a lot of people that don't like him, and I think, I think he is getting a bit of a raw deal in this, in this outcome. But I think he brought it on himself too. Sometimes you got to look around and ask yourself. Why is everybody mad at me?
0: Is it kind of weird that I I like Michigan now? I think it was a great great speech for Harbaugh. I thought it was funny. Like I'm in on Michigan now. All the you I, would, I, you, we're you would. Team. thank you.
1: Yeah. Dallas Cowboys in Michigan. <laughs> the Yankees too.
7: Yeah, the Yankees just go
1: all in. America. I was thinking, what kind? What part of America? You know, <laughs> like what part of America are we talking about here? <laughs> the cheating uh, part. Yeah. Number five.
7: All right, this one I got to talk about because it's just so gross. High school football game uh, in Virginia uh, beats the opponent one hundred four oh. to zero. Not only that, so like they were end of the game, clocks running out, and they had a chance to just run out the clock. The winners, Phoebus High School of Hampton, but instead. They went for more and they scored no. at a twenty eight yard touchdown pass on the game's final play to bring the score to one hundred and four to zero over Jamestown. What in the world?
1: There has to be bad blood there. <laughs> Somebody stole somebody's girlfriend. I don't <laughs> Two coaches went to school together. Somebody stole his lunch money or something I don't know. There's there's a backstory. Well the winning coach
7: one. is saying that, you know, he didn't he didn't actually mean to do it. He was doing it for the kids and now he's not proud of it and he regrets it. But come on.
1: Yeah, it's a bad look. I also think 81 to 7 and 91 nothing were bad looks. Portland State beat an opponent 91 nothing after losing 81 7. It was going around early in the season. Jealous. That stuff was going around. Um all right, we'll be back tomorrow with a great show. Uh the scene in Whitman County will have to determine how much of that is interested to you, but maybe you get to see the baby tomorrow as the judge will maybe decide also some college football playoff rankings out tomorrow we'll have it all right here for you 3 to 6 p.m. I will be joining uh from Whitman County Superior Courthouse hopefully uh it it will not be a settlement that is reached the minute I land on the ground tomorrow morning if it is I'll just hustle right back <laughs> you know but I got to be there I I, I got to be there because you know there's some things that need to be settled I'm going to try to get some insight on what Oregon State and Washington State are doing, not just the, you know, the outcome of the case. Grab a podcast, and we'll catch you tomorrow.